All right, please open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. This text that we're in today is our next step in our verse-by-verse chronological walk through the earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. This has been a a verse-by-verse walk while we harmonize the gospel. So essentially, by the end of this series... We will have preached through all four of the Gospels. And our desire in this series, from the very beginning, is to see see Christ more fully and thereby worship Him more rightly. So please find Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. As I said, we've been going through this verse-by-verse walk through the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. We've been going through it for quite some time now. And that's partly due to the fact that occasionally we break away from this series in order to expand our diet of God's Word into other genres and other parts of God's Word, which is very important. Just like having a balanced diet is important to physical health, having a balanced diet of God's Word is essential to spiritual health. So next week we're going to have a special message, and then the week after that we're going to begin a new series in Genesis with the hope of returning to seeing and savoring sometime early in 2017. So while you're finding today's text... I want to show you a short video clip of what I consider to be one of the, one of the funniest commercials from last year's football season. So I'm going to go ahead and, and play the clip right now. If the, if the audio's up, I'm ready to go back there. Let me see that. Participation trophy. But we, we won every game. Why do we get the same trophy as all those teams we beat? Are we going to start ending games with hugs instead of handshakes? No. No, 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 no. Here you go, champ. Thanks. All right. So how many of you in here, probably just children in here, you played in some sort of youth league where everyone got a participation trophy? Anybody? Or maybe your kids were in a league. Like everyone just, everyone got a, a participation trophy. Or worse, how many of you played in some peewee football or soccer or basketball league where they didn't even keep score. Anybody have kids that played in a, in a league where you did, just didn't even keep score? Yes, yes. By all means, you don't want any of these poor kids to think that they're losers, right? Well, Emma Kate, when she was really little, she played a, in a soccer league for, for little kids over at Creekside Soccer there in Loganville. And in that particular league, they didn't keep score. Well, at least not officially. But I remember as her team played, every time they scored, some of the kids would come running back, usually the boys, they would come running back and they would announce the score. They were keeping track in their own mind of what the score was. Or if the other team had scored more goals than they had, they would bemoan that fact. So the kids were keeping score in their mind. They knew who was winning these games and who was losing. Though the officials didn't keep score, the kids sure did. Like the, like the father in that video clip, they, they wanted to know... Who was actually winning these games? They were happy if the score was in their favor, and they were upset if it was not in their favor. That's simply human nature. We want to keep score. And we don't just keep score when it comes to sports. We keep score when it comes to life in general. We keep score of how many times he didn't pick up his dirty clothes, or how many times she didn't show us respect. Or how many times our boss overlooked us for a promotion. Or how many times that church member hurt us. Or how many times our pastor blew it. And on and on and on. We are scorekeepers by nature. Well, in today's text, Peter wants to know the extent to which a follower of Christ 
should keep score. He wants to keep score of two things. Number one, how many times a brother sins against him. And number two, how many times he should forgive that brother who sins against him. And as we'll see, Jesus teaches Peter and us to stop operating by sinful human intuition and instead begin to operate according to a transformed intuition, a new nature. So please stand, if you would, as we read Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. We stand at Harbin's when we read the scripture because we believe that this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. This carries the same authority as if Jesus Christ were standing here in the flesh speaking to us. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21, we'll read all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do To every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to today's text, I pray, Father, that you would help us to hear the very strong warning that Jesus gives at the end of this passage. And then to let this parable and let Peter's question serve as a a, a microscope to examine the, the, the deepest parts of our hearts so that we might see if there's any bitterness, any, any resentment that we are harboring, any unforgiveness in our hearts. Father, most of all, help us to see the cross more fully today. Help us to see how much, how much mercy, how much pity, how much grace has really been shown to us And do that, Lord, by helping us to see how deep our debt of sin really, really was. So, Lord, we pray that you would guide this time, give us all ears to hear, myself included, and grant me a mouth to speak. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Some unknown person once wrote this rhyme. To dwell above with saints we love, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. In chapter 18 of Matthew, 
Jesus is teaching about relationships within the kingdom of God, within the church. First, in response to his disciples' questions about who was the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus teaches them about the nature of true greatness. And he does this by bringing a child into their midst and tells them they must become like children in order not only to be great in the kingdom, but to enter the kingdom of heaven. A child was considered to have the lowest position in society. Thus, Jesus was teaching his disciples to humble themselves, to be willing to be considered nobodies by this world. You see, greatness in the kingdom of God is quite different than the world's definition of greatness. And so with that, Jesus first teaches them about the humble nature that should mark citizens of the kingdom. And then he teaches them about how citizens of the kingdom should act, how they are to live. Especially in regard to how we are are to treat one another in the body of Christ. First, we are to joyfully accept other nobodies in the name of Christ. Ministering to them, serving them. But also being very careful not to sin against them, thus causing any of God's children to stumble. But then we're left with the question, what are we to do if we do sin against one one another? What are God's children to do when we do cause each other to stumble? Well, we saw last week in verses 15 through 20 that Jesus taught us that we should, taught us how to confront a brother who sins against us. First, privately, if he doesn't repent, then by bringing in neutral witnesses. If he still doesn't repent, then it needs to be taken before the church. And if he remains hardened, he is to be put out of the church for his own good and for the good of the body. And we saw that Jesus himself gives that binding and loosing authority to the church. And even says that he himself will be with the church to help the church confront and judge sin appropriately. So that brings us to verse 21 of today's text. And the theme of sinning against one another continues. So last week we looked at the need to face a brother who sins against you. And today we look at the need to forgive a brother who sins against you. So it is in this context of dealing with a brother's sin that Peter comes to our Lord with a question in verse 21. And then Jesus gives him a challenging answer in verse 22. And then our Lord tells a convicting parable in verses 23 through 35. So that in the first two verses, I want us to see four observations that we'll mention quickly. And in that parable, I want to expand upon that final observation. So with that, let me give us the first thing this morning. And it's simply this, your first point. As fallen people, we will sin against one another. And that may seem very obvious to you. Now, I think it was pretty obvious to Peter, too. Peter simply assumes that he is going to be sinned against in the church. When he says brother, and he comes to the Lord, and he asks about how often he should forgive his brother, I don't think he's referring to his biological brother, Andrew. I don't think Andrew's in the background going, hey, what's up, Peter? Come on. I think he's referring to his brothers, because that's the context of this passage of Scripture in chapter 18. His brothers are referring to the other disciples, but beyond that, the other children of God, the citizens of the kingdom. Peter assumes that brothers, other Christians, will sin against each other. And as obvious as it may seem to us, we still need to be reminded of that. I think sometimes Christians, especially new Christians, come into the church and expect some sort of Edenic state where there's just perfect love and flawless fellowship and sincere humility and no hurting of one another whatsoever. Well, that's not only naive, it goes against the witness of Scripture, which clearly teaches us that believers are in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ, yet we still struggle with sin daily. The fact is that in the same book of the Bible, we read that Christians are both dead to sin, Romans 6, 11, and still putting sin to death, Romans 8, 13. 
The Bible clearly teaches that Christians are in a lifelong process of progressively defeating sin, of exercising the freedom we have in Christ, and that lifelong process is what we call progressive sanctification. We are becoming holy as our Heavenly Father is holy, yet to expect holiness from others, or at least perfect holiness from others or from ourselves at this moment, is unrealistic. So we as a community must hold each other accountable to grow in holiness while always being ready to forgive because we know and expect that undoubtedly we all will sin against one another. So Paul commands us in Colossians 3, verse 13, that we are to be bearing with one another. And if anyone, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Hold on to that last sentence. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. We'll see that again in a little bit. So simply, we see in these first words of Peter, in these first words of his question, that he rightly expects that his brothers will sin against him. So not only, we, we know that as fallen people, we will sin against one another, but also, as fallen people, we will sin against one another repeatedly. Repeatedly. That's why he wants to keep score. He, like all of us, is a scorekeeper. Peter, like all of us, is a scorekeeper. He wants to know how many repeated sins he's supposed to be willing to put up with. Peter's thinking uh, regarding forgiveness is off, but at least he's aware, as we should be too, that in this fallen state, we will be sinned against by the same person, probably more than once, perhaps even many times, Thus we are called in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and listen to this, be patient with them all. Be patient. Genuine love in the church is patient, according to 1 Corinthians 4, 13, verse 4. One aspect of the Holy Spirit's fruitful work in us is patience, according to Galatians 5. 22. And we need spirit-wrought, supernatural patience with one another because we are all so stinking stubborn. And we all have particular sins that we struggle with over and over and over again. And usually those sins affect other people. Sin wouldn't be a struggle if it were so easy to overcome. Thus we must have patience and compassion with one another and be willing to forgive. But why? Why must we forgive? And that's the next point. As forgiven people, we must forgive one another. As forgiven people, we must forgive one another. We forgive because we are forgiven. Peter knows that he must forgive. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? He knows this, that, he, that he must forgive his brother. He knows this because he's heard Jesus teach earlier in the scripture, in the Sermon on the Mount, the model prayer in which we, are, we, we learn that we are to forgive our debtors. But the main reason that Peter knows that he is to forgive sins is because he knows that he himself has been forgiven. Remember this exchange from Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Peter saw the miraculous catch of fish? We read that this, he says, it says, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But Jesus didn't depart from him. He brought him in as a disciple, forgiving him. Peter understood what it meant to be a sinner. 
and he understood that he had been forgiven. Therefore, he knew that he was to forgive. We forgive because we've been forgiven. The Christian community is made up of forgiven sinners, and so it must be a place where forgiveness flows freely. Ephesians 4.32, part of the passage Dima read earlier, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There's that clause again. As God in Christ forgave you. Keep holding on to that. So Peter is clearly aware that he is obliged to forgive. But what Peter wants to know, and if we are honest, what our flesh wants to know as well, is this. Is there a limit? When is enough enough? When is it time to require the other person to get their act together before we forgive them? When can can we simply stop forgiving incessant sin from that insensitive brother? Verse 21 That's the heart of Peter's question. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then Peter decides to answer his own question. As many as seven times? And we are tempted to look down on Peter here and uh, and think that, wow, what a hard-hearted guy he is. But actually, Peter was being very generous here. You see, the rabbis of that day taught that you were obligated to forgive someone only three times. Three times, that's the max. You don't have to go beyond three. So Peter here probably is thinking that he's, he's learned from Jesus quite well and that he's modeling the Lord's grace when he puts forth the number seven. He's probably thinking, yeah, Jesus, I'm starting to get it. How, seven? Does that sound like a good, good number? Seven certainly seems like a good number. As you know, seven to the Jews represented perfection, wholeness, fullness. So surely seven times was the full extent to which one was to forgive another, Right? And let's be honest, we probably think that's a pretty generous number, too. I mean, how many of you in here can identify a specific sin that someone has committed against you seven times? Or perhaps, let's, let's, let's say outside of perhaps your, your spouse and your kids, okay? Let's set them off the table here. Let's just think about brothers in the church, all right? Can, can you honestly recall more than one, two, three, maybe four times that a brother has committed a specific sin against you? So Peter here seems to be putting forth a very good number, a pretty tolerant standard of forgiveness. But Jesus is about to blow Peter's mind and thus demonstrate that Peter has no idea what true forgiveness really is or what the foundation of true forgiveness really is. So Jesus shows Peter that as forgiven people, we must forgive one another limitlessly. Limitlessly. Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, this numerical value is difficult to translate, and thus some translations say 70 times seven. Perhaps that's the version of Scripture you have. But regardless of whether the number is actually 77 or it calculates up to 490, the point is is that Jesus' point is very clear. You are to have no limit, no cap. No quota on the number of times you are willing to forgive. In other words, you are to forgive as much as it takes. You are to go on and on and on forgiving. When Jesus says 77 times, he's actually drawing from an Old Testament text. Genesis 4, verse 24. In that text, Lamech, a guy named Lamech, vows to avenge anyone that hurts him 70-fold. In other words, there was no limit 
to Lamech's vengeance against those who sinned against him. And so now Jesus, who in his ministry is always reversing the curse of Genesis, is saying, just as Lamech had no limit on his vengeance, so now the child of God should have no limit on his forgiveness. And at no point, not at sin number four, not at sin number eight, not at sin number 78 or sin number 491, are you to withhold genuine forgiveness, forgiveness from the heart. If you are calculating it, if you are scorekeeping, that simply means you do not understand the foundation of true Christian forgiveness. And so, with a parable, Jesus is going to demonstrate why and how we are to have limitless forgiveness. Now, the style of this parable is like Nathan's confrontation of David in 2 Samuel 12, where as you hear the story, you end up taking sides against your own position. And then you realize you are the man. So we must learn to exhibit limitless forgiveness, but how? How are we to do that? Well, as we read this story, I'm going to give you three points on how. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Let me stop right there. The first thing we need to know is that in this story, the king is God, God the Father, and the servants, or it could be translated slaves, are us, sinful humanity. And what we see in this first sentence of the story is that our God is a God who will settle accounts. So the first answer to our question, how, is simply this, by recognizing God's indefectible justice. By recognizing, by seeing, by by acknowledging God's indefectible justice. Indefectible simply means perfect. I needed a word that started with I. Okay, It simply means perfect. It means without defect. God is perfectly just and, and will perfectly settle accounts for every sin that any man, woman, or child has ever committed. The Bible teaches us clearly that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the the body, whether good or evil, 2 Corinthians 5.10. John was given a vision of this judgment seat in Revelation, where we read in Revelation 20, verse 12, says this, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So the first thing we need to see from from this parable is that God does settle accounts. And that he has recorded in minutia every deed, every sin, no matter how trivial, that each one of us has committed. You see, God is a scorekeeper too, and that's not a good thing for us. Every white lie... Every misunderstanding, every accidental offense, every sin of commission, every sin of omission, all of them are in the king's ledger. He will settle accounts because all of our sin is ultimately rebellion against him. And he is a perfectly good and perfectly just and perfectly holy creator and sustainer of all things. And so all of our sin, no matter how little we might think it to be, is cosmic treason treason against the king of the universe. So the first step in understanding how we are to become people who have a limitless forgiveness toward others is to see how perfect and just our God is. But secondly, we must become people of limitless forgiveness by remembering our incalculable debt. So we we need to, to recognize God's indefectible justice, and then we need to remember our incalculable debt. Verse 24. 
When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So, so in the story, a slave is brought before the king, and the slave owes a huge sum. This 10,000 talents, friends, is an unfathomable, uh, I can't even say that word, unfathomable amount. Unthinkable. That's, that's, that's for, for a southern boy like me, that's a better word. Unthinkable amount. Insurmountable debt. It's hard to try to get an exact financial figure from this because a talent was actually a, a unit of weight. But the ESV study Bible uh, puts it this way. Let me just quote straight out of the study Bible. The talent is the equivalent of about 20 years wages for a labor, a laborer. A common laborer earned about one denarius per day. In approximate modern equivalence, if a laborer earns $15 per hour at 2,000 hours per year, he would earn approximately $30,000 per year. And a talent would equal 600,000 U.S. dollars. Hence, 10,000 talents hyperbolically represents an incalculable debt, in today's terms, about $6 billion. So there's the debt. Perhaps to help us get our mind around it a little more, in Jesus' day, this amount was, was, was 1,000 times the annual Roman tax revenue for Galilee, Judea, Samaria, and Indumea, which is Edom, all added together. So if you add all those regions together, the, the tax revenue that Rome got in one year, and you multiply that times 1,000, then you're beginning to get close to the debt that this poor slave owed the king. What Jesus is showing us, he tells us the story so that we can see that the debt that we have before the king of the universe is a debt so great that we can't even come close to paying it off. The ledger of God records that our sins total up to an incalculable debt. In other words, we have a lot of red ink. And the key to becoming people who are generous in our forgiveness toward others is to understand these truths. What we are talking about here is simply putting into practice what we've been studying in our adult Bible study at 9.30 each morning. A growing awareness of God's holiness, justice, and let me put the chart up here. This is what we've been using in Bible study. A growing awareness of God's holiness and justice and a growing awareness of our sinfulness, our own depravity, our deep insurmountable debt. So here's our debt. Here's God's holiness and what we need to do in order to become people who forgive are people that are growing in awareness of both of those two things. When that happens, the forgiveness of God in the finished work of the cross becomes that much more evident in our life. We want to be gospel-centered people who forgive as Jesus forgives, who shine the cross in every relationship we have. Then first of all, understand how great your king is. And secondly, understand how deep your debt is. If you want to be someone who can actually forgive the way Jesus wants Peter to forgive. But we have to understand our own depravity. Romans 3. Paul gives this terrible indictment. He says in verse 9, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that means everybody, are under sin, as it is written. In other words, this is, he's referring to everybody here with these words. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's our problem. That's our debt. We've all sinned, and the wages, the payment for that debt is eternal 
death, infinite hell, for an infinite debt against an infinitely holy God. The debt, is rep- the debt is represented in this story as we read verse 25. It says, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. Here we see the, the devastating outcome of this man's debt. He was about to lose everything. And so Jesus' parable begins to sink in. That's us. Our king is just. He will settle accounts. We are in debt. And without help, we're losing everything, including our own lives. We must see that incalculable debt. We must see, as Paul did in Romans chapter 7, that we are wretches. Only then can we see the next thing. For we become people of limitless forgiveness by recognizing God's indefectible justice, by remembering our incalculable debt, and finally, by recalling God's immeasurable mercy. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now the audacity of this prayer, the servant actually pleads mercy on the basis of him paying everything back. So the first observation here is that this man is broken, but he's not broken enough yet. We must become poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. As Augustus Toplady wrote in his famous hymn, Rock of Ages, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But despite the fact that this man's plea is, is weak, the king shows unfathomable, there it is again, mercy. Verse 27. And out of pity, that is compassion for him, the master of that servant, listen to this, released him and forgave him the debt. Well, let us see that the, that, the, that the slave's proposal is not met by the king. It's exceeded by the king. Oh, how amazing God's good grace is towards us that we don't even know how to repent properly. We don't even know how to seek him rightly. Yet he, in his infinite mercy and grace, exceeds our foolish pleas and offers divine forgiveness that simply boggles the mind. The insurmountable debt has been dismissed. Listen to how such glorious truth affects Paul in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and following. Paul says this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. There's Paul recognizing his debt. And then he says this, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And this sends him, after he considers these type of things, in verse 17, it sends him into doxology, verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. A proper understanding of the gospel, a proper understanding of the cross, doesn't pat ourselves on the back. It sends us into an exaltation to where all we can do is praise God for his glory, his magnificence, and we're left without words to finish what we want to say. That's what the cross does. That's how we should react too. Now notice the king did two things. He released him, meaning he set him free from his slavery, and he forgave him the debt. 
Oh, friends, do you see the cross here? Our Lord Jesus not only forgives sins at the cross, he also sets us free, free to live, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. What glory, Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Surely now this parable starting to sink in with Peter, and surely now it's starting to sink in with us as well. The way we become limitless in our forgiveness is to recognize the limitlessness of his forgiveness toward us. And thus, as we saw in Colossians 3.12, as we saw also in Ephesians 4.32, we are to forgive as we have been forgiven in Christ. But now the gut punch of the parable. The part where Jesus exposes the foolishness of Peter's question and the insignificance of his willingness to forgive seven times. Verse 28. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, that's a day's wage, as I said earlier from that ESV study Bible note, a day's wage. So, it was, so probably this hundred denarii is somewhere between $5,000 to $10,000. Not a small amount, but not an insurmountable amount either. And surely nothing compared to the $6 billion that this man had just been forgiven. The text continues. It says, And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And we need to see the anger, the anger that resides in the heart of someone who's not willing to forgive. That's convicting to me. One of the sins I struggle with is anger. I have a short fuse sometimes. And I wonder sometimes if that anger isn't coming from somewhere, some resentment, some bitterness, where I'm harboring unforgiveness in my heart. An unforgiving person can oftentimes be an angry person. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. This is identical to his petition, which should have reminded him of the pardon that he had received before the king. But, verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Jesus is saying that Peter, Peter, by limiting forgiveness to seven times, that's like the foolish slave throwing a fellow servant, a fellow slave in jail for a few thousand bucks when he's just been forgiven six billion dollars. So he continues, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. You wicked servant. Let me pause right there so that we can see that Jesus says that unforgiveness is wickedness. Unforgiveness is not a personality flaw. Oh, I just have a hard time forgiving people. It's not an unfortunate attitude. It is flat-out wickedness. Continuing, verse 32. The king is speaking. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me? And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. By the way, the term jailers there is a soft translation in the ESV. It actually is the word torturers. He turns him over to the torturers until he pays all his debt. But remember, this is an incalculable debt. He can't pay this debt off. In other words, the punishment is eternal. He turns him over to an eternal torture. 
So Paul says in Romans eleven twelve, Note the kindness and the severity of God. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this passage, says, Jesus sees no incongruity in the actions of our Heavenly Father who forgives so bountifully and punishes so ruthlessly, and neither should we. That's what makes God God. As we read at the beginning, as we read at the beginning of the service, Exodus 34, He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So this brings us to the truly frightening and troubling conclusion to Jesus' teaching in verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart, meaning sincerely. This is a tough saying of Jesus's, But he's not teaching works righteousness, that we must earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. Instead, he is boldly teaching that if we are not people marked by forgiveness, that we are not, if we are not people who are, who are marked by a new nature, people that have been born again as children of God, if we're not marked by forgiveness, then we cannot expect to be people who receive forgiveness. That's a serious warning. Those who have truly been forgiven know God's holiness, know their own sinfulness, and know God's immense mercy toward them, and thus they are compelled, they are driven, and I will even say they delight to forgive others in the same way. Matthew here and in other places will not let us get away with cheap grace. Matthew 6, 12, Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer that we are to pray this way. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do you see what Jesus is telling you to do? He's telling you to limit your request for forgiveness to the degree to which you have forgiven others. If that doesn't scare you and cause you to search your own heart, to search out unforgiveness, it should. In other words, forgive others If you're a type of person who's going to come before the Lord seeking forgiveness, you need to be the kind of person who's freely offering it to others. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 to 15, just a few verses later, Jesus says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. To not exhibit grace towards others serves to demonstrate that we have not been recipients of grace. Michael Green, in his commentary, says this. We cannot go through heaven's narrow door if our lives are bulging with resentments. If we're filled up with unforgiveness, we should not expect to walk through that narrow gate. So let us hear how serious Jesus is about forgiveness. But but why is forgiveness so hard for us? Why do we become scorekeepers? Why do we build up bitterness and resentment? Let me just offer a few reasons. I'm sure there's many more than just these few. But let me just put forth a few as we bring the sermon in for a landing here. Number one, we sinfully like to be in control. Forgiveness means letting go. But as long as we hold back our forgiveness, we have a certain amount of control over the other person. And we, as little gods, want to be in control. 
Number two, we sinfully fool ourselves into thinking that keeping a record of others' wrongs is actually discernment and a passion for holiness. We talked about some of this this morning in our Bible study. Number three, we sinfully fear that someone will take advantage of us if there's no limit to our forgiveness. And by the way, that may happen. But Paul teaches us to let the Lord be our defender and even says that it's better to be defrauded than to try to make things right according to human reckoning. So someone may take advantage of you if you're a forgiving person. So be it. Fourthly, we sinfully wait for, for them to make the first move to justify the harboring of our bitterness and our resentment. Now, let me just say something here. Sure, the transaction of forgiveness can't fully take place until one party asks for forgiveness and the other party grants it. But we must be willing to always be in a posture of forgiveness, just as our Lord Jesus was in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, as he hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I'm sure there's many more, but let me give you the main reason. The main reason that we have a hard time forgiving is that we sinfully forget the cross. We sinfully forget the gospel. Or we reduce the gospel to getting into the Christian life. The gospel is all about just getting saved. And we forget that the gospel is what we need to continue to live the Christian life. If you're not centered on the gospel and preaching the gospel to yourself every day, like that chart showed, you will not be a forgiving person. So we must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. We must remember and agree with what the psalmist said in Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So let us take our Lord's words this morning with blood earnest seriousness. If we do not forgive, we will not be forgiven. And for those in here who have not yet tasted of Jesus' forgiveness because you've never come to the cross in repentance and faith, let me urge you to wait no longer. Friends, you must see that at the cross, the holy character of God, a just God who will by no means clear the guilty, is on display so that he puts his son in our place to absorb his holy and just wrath against sin. And yet at that same cross, he shows us that he is a God who keeps steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin as he counts our sin as paid by Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says it is finished, it is truly finished. It's not that God stops being a scorekeeper, but that he puts our score, our debt, on the shoulders of his son. He clears out the ledger for us. So friend, see the justice of God who will settle accounts. See the insurmountable debt of your sin and repent, pleading for mercy before a benevolent king who will pour out upon you the riches of his grace if you will come to him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I think if we are honest and if we will acknowledge the fact that most of us in here do not understand the level of our debt. And so we daily need to grow in our understanding of our own sinfulness. And as we studied earlier today, that doesn't mean we're becoming more sinful. It simply means we're more aware of how fallen our condition really is before a holy and just God. So God, I pray that you help us. Help us to be 
people who were willing to just give forgiveness lavishly towards those who have sinned against us. Because we know that there's a limitless forgiveness that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. And that every sin, past, present, and every little trivial sin that we're going to do into the future, until the moment we breathe our last breath, was paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. That fact alone should cause us to be Ephesians 4 people. But we are sinners and we struggle. And it's so easy to harbor bitterness, even after we tell someone, oh, I forgive you. Lord, help it to be from the heart. Help it to be genuine. And we need your spirit to do that because we are too stubborn. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask you to do a work in our hearts where we are willing to freely offer forgiveness to those brothers in this room and maybe outside of this room who have sinned against us. And Jesus, we pray to you as well that you would increase, that we would decrease in every single aspect of our lives especially in this aspect of our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Heavenly Father, if there be any in here who are not a believer in Jesus Christ, who have never placed their hope and their faith and their confidence in Him alone, if they never come to Him in repentance and asking forgiveness of their sins, I pray, Lord, today would be the day that you stir up their heart with brand new life and that it would spring forth with repentance. I ask you to do that. We ask all this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.